Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated B for podcast. Gentlemen, we have a problem. One of you is a woman. We also have other problems. Allow me to explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. We are living in a dystopian future, gentlemen. One in which corporations reign supreme. We are mere workers, cogs, expendable consumers. Human life is worthless as we are fed into the humongous, uh, dehumanizing machine of the corporate thing that is everywhere and bad. I'm taking suggestions. Do you have any? I think we could unleash a vampire teenage army or possibly some leather-clad pin-headed monsters or maybe even a giant robot who's on the side of the law. Or, alternatively, we could just try and get him into the cinema, release a few chick flicks. That's the... Anyone? I like, the, I like the cut of your jib there. Ah, well, there yes, we go we'll then. Yes, let's that one. Chick flicks so, it um, is then. Uh, welcome to yes. the 80s, kids. <laughs> and, uh, of course, coming up with the uh, fantastic corporate suggestions today, I am joined by the wife, Sue. Hello. And uh, I am Leo. And uh, we also have... Oh, well, I'm Ian. I'm, I'm always here. Who cares oh, about we, me? We, we're a man down. We are a man we down. Are. Well, he, he got so, some... Unfortunately, I needed to uh, demonstrate my new two-legged law enforcement droid, and uh, he, he was the yes. one who put the gun on the floor. I didn't hear him, All unfortunately. Right. Okay. Anyway, if there are some bangs and crashes during the podcast, that's just the janitorial staff cleaning up. Right. Yes. Okay. Although we, we have removed his uh, you know, shredded human remains, and I send them off to our cybernetic department to see what they can do with it. Ah, yeah, uh, you see it all links together. You see, yeah. it all does link together. Um, yes, uh, this, I mean, this puts me in mind of the films of nineteen eighty-seven. I don't know about you guys. I, 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 uh, I am a bit disappointed actually because um, in talking outside of the show, uh, we were talking about the fact that nineteen eighty-seven was upcoming, and Justin did say that he seemed to see. Sort of after we've done, you know, 1984, 1985, 1986. I mean, you know, those have been some massive shows. And he said, oh, I can see that the the rot is beginning to creep in at this stage. And I'm like, really? Can you? Because you know, I'm not. I'm not seeing much evidence. I'm not seeing much evidence of that in, in this year. In fact, uh, to be honest, I'm seeing a lot of. Um, I do see in a lot of things which are going to run into the 90s. And then fall over and become bad. But at this point, it's all new stuff. It's all very exciting, mostly. Uh, maybe we yes. should start. Let's start our discussion today with, I think, um, we, we've kind of been keeping track uh, over the course of the 80s of the career paths of Stallone and Schwarzenegger. Because I think that Stallone and Schwarzenegger exemplify a lot of, you know, 
uh, 80s, you know, well, they are very 80s. they're very 80s guys. Yeah. And, and it was interesting to me that when we started the 80s, I thought we'd be straight in there. And it took a, a few, a little while for them really to warm up. And then, you know, 1985, they both had a pretty good year with, you know, Rockies and Rambos and, and, and various short, uh, Terminatory type things came out in 1984, of course, and, uh, and, and Schwarzenegger made Commando in 1985, so that capitalized on that. So they, they kind of moved into this thing and then, 1986, they had a really bad year, both of them, where, you know, we've got Raw Deal versus, um, Raw Deal versus Cobra, and neither of them are winners. This year, Stallone decides to spend his money on over the top. I mean, literally, he was in full creative control of that movie. A movie about arm wrestling. Meanwhile, what did Tornado do? Oh, not much. He just did Predator and The Running Man in one year. So, yeah, 1987 was a round that definitely went to the Burley Austrian, uh, I think. Uh, and I just thought maybe that was a good... Pl- I mean, what better place to start to show... Uh, 80s kids, 87, they're talking about, well, I mean, you know, let's first of all say, I watched a bit of Over the Top, because it's available on Netflix. Just to, Have you ever seen Over the Top, Ian? I have not seen Over the Top, but I have, I have much to say about the double punch that Schwarzenegger delivers. Well, we're going to we're gonna get into that just in a moment, but I just want to top off, for anyone who's on any doubt, you know, maybe Over the Top is an underrated, you no. know... No, 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 it's not. No, no, no. We, we both sat there. We watched maybe 25 minutes of it before we liked. 31 minutes, 47 seconds. Get it right. <laughs> no, no, that was, um, that was, um, what was the other thing? We oh, watched? Masters of the Universe. Was the Masters of the Universe movie, which also came out in 1987. <laughs> yes. No, we didn't get that far into Over the Top. I just basically wanted to see the basic premise, um, which is that Stallone is a truck driver, um, and arm wrestler. Who is driving? Who's driving his estranged son across who's a military, America? He's a military school kid who basically he hates his dad because you know he hasn't well, bothered with him, even because, though his mum sent him to military school. Well, no, yeah. actually, it's implied or quite strongly suggested that his mother has possibly leukemia or cancer or something at this stage in his hospital, and that the kid's uh, mind has been warped not only by military school, but by the presence of his evil grandfather, played by Robert Lovia. Which is, I mean, I suppose that kind of, the overall setup is a little bit melodramatic, but it's okay. But then it's the fact that the central crux of the movie is basically... The bit where we kind of got the idea was he goes into a bar with the kid after the initial, you know, uh, oh, I hate you and all this kind of stuff Stuff had gone on to set up the, the family situation. Um, and this big, muscly guy walks up to him and goes, are you hawk? I'm going to take you down, man. And then they go, get the table. And they walk out into the back of the room and they've got an arm wrestling table set up. And then they both sit there like grunting for and then he gets the arm down and everybody's playing with it. There's no actual I mean I think that Stallone was very much I don't want to do you know, like Rocky is about boxing. I want it to be a show about, you know, sportsmanship and stuff like that and blah blah blah. He didn't want to do, you know, a barroom brawl, you know, as a children present. And it's like But it's lame <laughs> it, looks it has to awful. be said 
it, it, you know, if I was going to do a Rocky parody, it might be about arm wrestling. Because essentially you've got two guys staring at each other grunting. And, like, maybe the hero gets pushed over and looks like he's going to lose. But then he rallies and pushes his way back. I mean, that's essentially the one trick well, you can do. I'm pretty Unless sure... Unless you can very tragically break your arm at the midway point of the film. It looks like you look like you're washed out at that stage or something. I'm, well, yeah, you know? I'm pretty sure that what you've done is you've hit the major story beats that we didn't get to. Obviously, we only watched the initial battle, which wasn't really... A challenge. It just showed that Sylvester Stallone was pretty goddamn good at arm wrestling. Oh yeah. I mean, this is the thing. In fiction, well, is... we like our heroes to be competent. Competent arm wrestlers? I'm not really sure so much. <laughs> well, I'm pleased for him. I'm glad he's got an outlet. It's it's just that you know when it comes to the great grudge matches in films, beating someone at an arm wrestle, it doesn't quite the same. Yeah, as punching him in the face with your gloves. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so that was that's over the top. Let us move on from that to go to the other side of the muscly action agenda and talk about you know Predator and the Running Man. Oh, nobody's interested in those. Well, must we? Must we? Yeah. Well, two of the best. Well, here we here we are. We have we have premium cut eighties here. I think Eight, things the eighties can be rightfully very proud of. Uh, one of which still continues, sort of, to spawn films relatively recently, and may spawn again. Yes, Predator. Predator has, Predator, uh, has legs. Uh, I think that, in a certain way, um, well, the last Predator artifact that our culture produced was, of course, um, the Robert Rodriguez produced or the executive produced Predators. Uh, did you see that? I did see that. I, I went to see it with the um, gleeful optimism it may redeem the franchise from the Alien vs. Predator milieu. Well, it one, into. One I know we have a difference of opinion here, Leo. Yes. But it's like... Uh, but, uh, yes. And, and it, of course, it for some reason, the, the, the Alien franchise... Alien is the elephant in the room. It has to be mentioned. The Alien franchise and the Predator franchise became permanently intertwined when an alien skull turned up in, in Predator 2. And, and since then, in comics and imaginations, it's kind of been the same universe. So when you make predators, pluralizing predator, it, it kind of seems like an almost organic, totally natural, and in some ways derivative way of, of extending your series. Um, predator itself, it, it's very good because, I don't know, it, it, Arnie's... I feel like Arnie doesn't completely swamp the film. It's quite significant that the Predator series has pretty much gone on and been fine without him. So I think it's, he's quite a good monster himself. They took the monster quite seriously, whilst at the same time making him quite under, understandable to all. He's a man with a gadget. Well, everyone knows a man with a gadget. Well, men know men with gadgets anyway. So he, he's a relatable alien. Women do as well. <laughs> yes. You know, even though we don't know what the symbols are, we know it's counting down to blowing up. Um, and you know he's he's quite a sporting fellow as well, so um, I think he came up with a very a very good looking alien. It, it's it's still humanoid at the end of the day, but bulked up with a with, with a terrifically. Wow. So, shall we? Shall we? Uh, like the predator, shall we disappear for a moment into the jungle and let's focus? Uh, there's a reason I want to uh, approach them in this order. Shall we first of all talk about the Running Man? I love that film. Right, Sue, you love that film. I love the 
I love the uh, the cold concept of that film, but I also love the way that film plays out. That it's like the game show of it. I love the loudness and the noise, and then the quietness, and then the fighting, and then the, again it's quiet again, and then it's loud again. I love the colours. I love the sounds. I love the you know you always remember once you've seen Running Man. You remember it. You it's one of those films that sticks in your head, and it's quite again quite quotable, and it's quite you know. Let's get right. You know, it's it's one of those things, and you remember these big beefy guys going out there in the, you know, that it's all because I like wrestling as well. I think it's got that kind of element to it, but it's got a game show element to it. Yeah, I think it's really wonderful. You, you just made me want to watch The Running Man now. Yeah. We don't have a copy of that in the house. I'm gonna have to track one down. Sorry, that's the way yeah. it is. Uh, Ian, your thoughts on The Running Man? I'll be back only in the reruns. Um, yes, uh, fantastic. And I, I don't think, I did not see it at the cinema, of course, of an age where these things appeared to you on videos and, and laid further evidence to the fact that all adult films were better than the stuff I was supposed to be watching, which is probably a lie. But anyway, uh, yeah, and the whole game show element appealed to me greatly. Of course, uh, uh, when did Gladiators come out in America? Because they were talking about American Gladiators in school, so it must have been knocking around. Um, and of course, it's, ba- it's loosely based on a Philip K. Dick no- uh, short no, it's story. Not, I it's think. not. It's based on uh, the Richard Bachman ah. Stephen King adaptation, yeah. basically. Ah, another Stephen King adaptation. Richard Bachman. Um, the Running Man novel. It's, it's a loose adaptation, isn't it? It's yeah. a loose adaptation. It's very loose. Yeah. There's no game show in it, as far as I'm aware. Um, uh, yeah. I, Again, I think Sue kind of hits upon it the way... I mean, it takes it, it takes a little time getting up to it, but once you get into the game show itself, it's like, actually, apart from the fact that human beings are being murdered here, this is, sounds like a great concept for a show. Yeah. <laughs> if, we could, if we could replicate this, it would be great. Maybe, uh, maybe, yes. maybe you could replicate it with children in a kind of Thunderdome, you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> uh, with a plucky female protagonist. I mean, this is the thing. I, it's weird... Uh, yeah, there is. I mean, when you, I don't think Philip K. Dick ever did this particular plot line. Although Robert Sheckley, who is another uh, or, uh, sci-fi writer of the sort of the silver age of science fiction, uh, he was obsessed with it. He wrote uh, a short story called The Third Victim, uh, and then he wrote another slightly longer story called The Seventh Victim. Then he novelized The Seventh Victim. I mean, he just basically wrote what is essentially The Running Man over and over again, except when he was doing it, it was more like there was a little indie movie that came out um, in in the early 2000s called uh, Series 7, The Contenders, which we shall get back yes. to discussing at yeah. the appropriate juncture, and it was more like that. Things like Battle Royale, they kind of owe a nod to Running Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing, it all owes, owes a little nod to, to it. So, I mean, yeah. yeah, it sounds like this incredible... And I think this is interesting because this is ties together uh, what I'm going to say about Predator and, and, and The Running Man. This concept of the game, the, you know, the fatal game show, um, is, is, sounds like it's going to be a really good idea. I mean, I know that it was, I thought, you know, I, I've never written a, a fatal game show story. I think the ultimate fatal game show story, after all, is actually, um, Cube. Yeah. Yeah. 
because they're not even sure it is a game show. In fact, it's not a game show. It's just some pointless Kafka-esque puzzle. But it's that that's that you know that gets the the inside the head of the people who are inside that crazy situation. Whereas, I, yeah, I always find that I like the idea of what's going to happen more than than what actually does usually. Uh, did you see series seven, The Contenders? Yes. I haven't. No. Oh, I, when I first saw when I first saw back. Running Man, I never saw the end of it. It was a year or two later I finally saw the end of it. I was like, how does it end? How does it end? I was like, oh, well, they do a broadcast and the government falls. I was like, what? I, I just didn't accept that kind of ending. And so it, it, actually watching the ending when I came to it, was a bit kind of like, what? They made a broadcast and the, and the populace, who were quite happy to stay and watch innocent people get butchered for their entertainment. So they're like, no, down with this sort of thing. What do you mean those other criminals weren't allowed to live on Odessa's Island with, with loads of cash? Outrageous. We, of course, went to see a film... Only the other day, that well, yeah, again yeah. another big nod to this. Which, and, well, that's what I was kind yeah. of alluding to. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't like the end of The Running Man, then The Hunger Games could be the franchise for you. Yeah. Well, the ending is, let's... <laughs> well, the ending of the, of the Hunger Games is like, well, off you go and play that again then, would you? Um, <laughs> so that's all a bit sad, really. But yes, uh, Running Man, the actual film itself, glorious... And, you know, all, all the kind of gladiators and after them are very distinctive. You, still, you do remember them. They stick in the mind like Dynamo and things like that. Yeah. Um, saying, it's very wrestler or very, as she says, gladiator-esque. It's very, very colourful. It's very, lots of flashy lights and, and, you know, sending them out onto that street to survive and nobody's allowed to help them and this kind of stuff. But everybody's kind of cheering for them to survive at the same time. And it's like, you know, it's it's... Because they're told they're criminals and they want them to die, but at the, at the end of the day, when it gets down to it, they want them to survive. You know, um, yes. it's really, it's really quite cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, I mean, what's, what is kind of interesting, and that because the, the, another part of this whole subgenre, of course, is um, the death race yeah. style one, where you have it with cars, yeah. you know, wacky races with Gatling guns and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And now that I come to now that I come to think about it, um, it's very interesting to me that that the Running Man and Death Race and all these don't really spawn video games. I mean, you'd think it's the ultimate video game setup, really, because you could set up a sort of a, a sort of a Mamorpgor or a, a you know sort of a, a roguelike video game in which you play different contestants in the same Fatal Game Show. It, it it's just an idea begging to be made, but but yet it never has. How strange! But again, you know, just there's other things that it has spawned, and I suppose there are video games that are loosely kind of similar. And yeah, I'm sure that there probably was a running game adaptation on like the Amstrad or something. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it's it may just be the fact it's it's 87 yet, and so the the you know is the SNES out? Is the is the is the NES out? You know, is it all? Well, I mean, but, I mean, infrastructure there yet? Yeah, I'm thinking in the present day that somebody would have picked that up. I mean, the only fatal game show esque game for the last couple of generations of consoles was the famously reviled Manhunt mm. on PS2, um, and, and then Manhunt. it's reviled. But the people who play it generally come out like kind of like that was one of the most awesome video games I've ever played. Mm. But um. Well, I played the, the original one to see what the fuss was about, and it was one of the most boring video games I'd ever played, but there we go. <laughs> Never mind. Um, so, yeah, so there's that. And then this is where I'm going to come in on Predator, moving on to the, the other side of this coin, 
is that to a certain extent, and it's the, it's kind of the Predator. Yes, there's some interesting things about the Predator, and I'm imagining when you don't really know what it's about, or the problem is that when someone described to me the premise of Predator, which is that you know these Marines or well, the mercenaries get uh, hounded in the South American jungle by an alien hunter. Um, and I think they called it Predator and not like Alien Hunter or something. In fact, I think the original script title was Alien Predator and they didn't want to have it associated at that time uh, confused with the Alien franchise. Irony, it's almost overpowering. Ironic, yeah. Um, This is at the stage when Jean-Claude Van Damme, of course, was going to portray the the Predator. You know that originally that's what was going to happen, Ian? Did you know that? Well, you know, there's been a lot of derivative Predator films that have come out since. A lot of cheap Predator derivative films. It's quite good how the Predator take it all takes it all quite seriously. Yes. Uh, and plays it quite straight, which I quite like. I, I was. Uh, I, it, yes. Did you so did, did you we, know that Jean Claude Van Damme was originally going to? I be, did not know Van Damme was in the uh, was in the line for. I think they got an upgrade to get Schwarzenegger. There is actually um, there is actually footage of Jean Claude Van Damme being the Predator. Uh, in the original version, uh, but you know in... he was—he was the predator. Yeah, yeah, no. Jean Claude Van Damme was going to be the predator against Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah, I thought he was going to be the Arnie part. No, no, so he, he was, was going to play the predator. And the reason he quit it and went off the canon was that um, he didn't realise that nobody'd be able to see his face in the makeup. And it's it, the, the predator film actually dodged a bit of a bullet there. Because they had no idea. They just went, oh, it's an alien that is hunting them. And if you look at the script as it's written, it's really more about the mercenaries. The alien is just an alien. Oh, yeah, of course it is. Well, no, but yeah, but the point of that is that they didn't really know what the alien was. So then Jean-Claude Van Damme walks off in a huff um, because he, he doesn't mind selling lager on the side of a fake mountain as long as people can see his beautiful face. But if they can't see his beautiful face, he's out of here. There's no more. His deal is off. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he went off to do the other thing instead. And so they were in a bit of a, a pickle. And so that's where, some, you know, they had a brainstorming session or whatever it is. And they just hired Kevin Peter Hall, came up with the alien makeup, did all this stuff, made a few changes to the script. And, and Predator, as it is, no. And remembered was bored and a jolly good thing too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've always, when people explain to me it's a hunter, when it behaves or, you know, when it says an alien hunter hunts a group of mercenaries, I had in my head that he was a hunter. And so when he behaves like a hunter and does all the hunting things, I was totally unsurprised. Whereas I imagine if you took that in a more generic sense, like, oh, well, they are being hunted. So obviously there's an alien monster, but he's not literally a hunter. That would be ridiculous. You would start to be like, wow, this is really clever. But I I actually never got that buzz off it because I was just, yes, it's a hunter. That's why it's doing this. That's why it's doing that. Um, And so maybe, I mean, I've always found Predator a bit underwhelming in that respect. I've got to find Predator well, more interesting later on when everybody knows. Because then yes. the writer has to work at what the Predator is. Because they, you know, well, the big jokers. I think it, it's oh. just that kink that, that that there are some people for whom the Predator, it's, it's beneath it to kill them. Or, or, or dishonourable 
Predator, I was watching Predator 2, and uh, the Predator goes to kill one of the cops, but holds back because he realizes she's pregnant. And I explained this to my housemate at the time, and she was like, oh my god! Uh, exactly. Shocked and awed by, by, by the processes this creature thinks by. He's like, nope, that's unsporting. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do this. And it, but yes, the fact it has an agenda. And I think if you're a big sci-fi f- fan when you approach the movie in the first place, the fact of it thinking like a, a, a hunter having a code of ethics and stuff isn't such a big leap. I think this is a film that more is... I think it's a good entry point to people into the science fiction genre. Because if you think of it all as silly little green men, and then you watch that movie, you come out of it, and it's a very easy thing to explain to people. Well, it's it's got a code of ethics. You go, really? Science fiction can be about alien creatures that have an alien code of ethics. Yes. And so it's not just yes. flying saucers See, and little green men. He comes from a warrior race, don't worry. A lot of those around in science fiction. Uh, the other thing also is that it, it kind of does the definitive stealth camo. I mean, after this, stealth camo looks like predator camouflage. I don't know if anyone did it first. The whole kind of shimmering invisibleness you, you can see it, but you can't kind of a thing. Well, there's this, there is a similar effect, although it's not used for stealth in Dune, but I can't think of anything. Sue, your thoughts on Predator? At first, I didn't. I never really liked it. I never really understood and got it. Um, it was later on. It was as an adult I started to understand that film and started to appreciate just how good that film was. Um, and I think it's because I, I feel like, my new point as you pointed out, that it wasn't really supposed to be this horror thing. It was actually supposed to be a sci-fi thing and about a hunter, about somebody who was hunting prey. And because it was sold to me as a big horror thing, everybody was like, "Oh, it's really horror. It's really horrific." And I was like. As somebody who's a massive horror fan, I'm completely disappointed <laughs> in, the, it, in the horror of it. It doesn't hit, um, it doesn't hit horror notes in yeah. a conventional such yeah. session. Yeah, so I was completely disappointed and it was like, really? This is supposed to be horrific? You know what I mean? Um, so I was a bit ugh, it. It was only later when I went back to it and looked at it as a sci-fi project and looked at it as it was. Um, and later on, I loved the... I love all the spin-offs, so to me, I love all the... I know Ian does disagrees, but I love all the Aliens versus Predators, and I love all of that kind of stuff, so I, yeah, I, I like the film I now. Think, yeah. I appreciate it for what it is yeah. now. I so, think yeah. that it's a film that has the power that if you if you are going into it with low expectations, yeah. it completely catches you off guard. That's that's where yeah. it is. So yeah, I mean, but anyway, yeah. The reason I wanted to come to Predator Second in the two discussions is because uh, it famously—I I don't know famously, but one of the things that is is interesting about it is that one of the mercenaries is played by Shane Black, and Shane Black isn't really an actor; he's a screenwriter. And in this year, one of his first screenplays that was accepted an option made it to the screen. Um, and actually it ties up a, a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to come to in this episode. But we'll move straight so from Shane Black um, to Shane Black's script for The Monster Squad. Did you Have you seen The Monster Squad, Ian? No, I'll go back to wrestling with my dog. Let me know when it's over. <laughs> well, I, I think it's... Uh, yes. Well, no. Ooh, hello. He's here. Oh, yes. So, um, 
the Monster Squad is um, it's an interesting project. We wa- I watched it again the other night. It's not a very long film. It's only about seventy five minutes long. I've always uh, found it to be rather damn damning praise when you say it was an interesting film. Well, no, I mean, I think it's, it's right. Essentially, Universal took a look at the Goonies and That's what I'm saying. It's, all of these it's other a things. Goonies horror film. It's <laughs> a Goonies star horror film. It's, yeah. it, 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 it distinguishes yeah. itself in that the most famous person in it for any length of time is Tom Noonan, who plays Frankenstein's monster. But the essential idea was, and Universal have played this card a number of times uh, with l- ever-diminishing returns um, over the past, you know, past couple of decades. Is that, Well, we've got all these monsters. We've got, you know, your Bela Lugosi Dracula. We've got your classic Frankenstein. We're known for, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon and the mummy. We're known for these these guys. So we've got the intellectual property on those those monsters looking that particular way so we should exploit that right so the premise of the monster squad is basically the goonies crossed with abbott and costello meet frankenstein sort of on paper it's not necessarily a terrible idea no uh dracula is the main villain uh much the same way i mean it, it it's got this kind of bizarre chime of of van helsing uh, as from some, you know the modern perspective, like you can't help but go, oh, I see. So Universal d- bring this card out. Let's put all of our best monsters into a single film with whatever the flavor du jour of modern cinema is. So in this it's case, rather appropriate to bring this, bring this up after Predator Alien, really, for, for another team up. Um, carry yeah. on. Well, yeah. Um, so. Uh, well, that's Fox, of course. But yeah, so Universal went right. So could Dracula, Frankenstein, the uh, Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon and the Mummy are all going to turn up in this town to do something with a MacGuffin jewel that opens a portal to some dark... Pla- something's going to happen. Anyway, I mean, they, they don't really need to be that clear because the whole point is that they're supposed to centre on the, the Goonies-like uh, troop of young kids uh, who are, you know, like who are doing the usual Goonies-style stuff of shouting at each other and swearing and telling rude jokes and, and you know, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, not really sure why it went headfirst into the turf, really. I mean, apart from the fact that it had nobody in it. None of the kids are famous. You know, you remember, you know, the Goonies had lots of Corys in it and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, going on for it and had big names attached to your direction and the production and what have you. And, you know, it's like, who's playing Dracula in the Monson Squad? Oh, it's an actor called Duncan Regeer. You remember him? No, you don't, because of, he was never... Of course, I remember him. I am, he said, reaching for his internet database. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it just... And I think that's probably... I mean, ironically, I mean, the director was um, a guy called Fred Decker. Have you heard that name before, Ian? Fred Decker? Uh, no. Well, have I you should seen, have done that again. Have you seen Robocop 3, Ian? I have seen it. I saw it in the cinema. I saw it for free, but I saw it in the cinema. Yeah. He directed Robocop 3. Now, 
I think he directed some other stuff beforehand that was a bit better regarded. In fact, Monster Squad is a perfectly serviceable movie. There's absolutely... I mean, you know, this is like... The Monster Squad is kind of like the Goonies version of what Flight of the Navigator was for Spielberg movies. That's a fair comment, yeah. don't you think? Yeah. It's like it's got nobody in it, but it's perfectly... It's perfectly it's serviceable. It's a throwaway fun little movie. It's perfectly fine. Yeah, and, but I think obviously it's what, quotable. It's good yeah. fun. The monsters are okay. Yeah, it's a good fun little time. As we yeah. said, as we said about Flight of the Navigator, it to a certain extent manages to out Spielberg. Spielberg, the Monster Squad, in no way yeah, out no. Spielberg's no. that part of Spielberg's career. It's not. It's not better than the Goonies. It's just a sort of Goonies alike, and for that reason, it tanked. And Fred Decker sort of makes a sort of wry, it's, it's sort of a bittersweet comment rather than a joke, that the Monster Squad put his career on the skids and Robocop 3 just basically finished him off. Um, yes. Because, you know, he the studio just wouldn't leave him alone on Robocop 3. They just wouldn't, they wouldn't let him make get, a good movie. I've, I've got his thing up here now, director-wise, before Monster Squad, it was Night of the Creeps in 86. Uh, after which he did uh, Tales from the Crypt for television, Robocop 3, that's it for him. He After that, the biggest credit I can see for him is he's a writer-producer on Star Trek Enterprise. Yeah, and, and so, the th- yeah, I mean, the thing about it is that he he was sort of like that kind of horror movie sort of a- area. He was looking to be, a, you know, someone who was going to become well-regarded in that area. And then all this stuff happened, and... It finished him off. He never, he could never get, you know, one foot in front of the other. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's that's the sad tale of uh, of the Monster Squad um, there. You he wrote it as well. Um, yeah, leading through. Sorry, he wrote it too. Yeah, he did to pass on the script. But as I said, Shane Black also. <laughs> we looked at the credits, and I was like, really, Shane Black wrote some of this. And actually, when you look at it, you know. That all the kids' dialogue, all the one-liners and what have you, are quite clearly because, of course, Shane Black, you know, was in Predator, wrote the Monster Squad, then wrote Lethal Weapon, then wrote um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and recently wrote Iron Man Three. So, if you follow those movies in that, that direction, you can see Wolf where the dialogue came from. Wolfman has not. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so yes, um, and, and of course. That makes our association sort of circuitously back to a movie we have discussed before at some length. Um, but we, 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 we obviously have to mention that this is the year of Robocop. Yeah. Mm. Not least because, I mean, one of the things that when we stacked it up before as part of the body of work of one Paul Verhoeven. But in this year, there is, I mean, the reason for our, our, you know, opening gambit is the fact that Robocop comes out same year as Wall Street. You know, I mean, that's... Yes, it is It is the year of the dark corporations. And Robocop, we've discussed it in the past, um, but it is, it's just one of those films that you just kind of go away from feeling slightly horrified, slightly thrilled at the same time. Uh, and And... Punching the air with victory at the end for some bizarre reason, even though we actually gain very little <laughs> on, our, on our emotional well, journey, other than count. we killed a load of bad guys. <laughs> so you do gain a body count. I'm well, well, a big body count. <laughs> well, rather than rehash things that we've kind of already said, I think one of the important things about I mean, this is how I view Robocop. 
when you uh, many time travel stories and Doctor Who is no exception, but more recently have this thing about oh there are things in history you cannot change. You know there are lots of other things that could be different, but then there are these fixed points where you can't change an event. That event has to happen or else the entire universe collapses. I always view Robocop as one of those films that is a, a direct analogy for that in our, you know, if Robocop hadn't happened, a lot of the culture that followed it just wouldn't have happened either. Robocop so you're saying we've got Robocop to blame for the 90s, is that what you're saying? Well, this is certainly one of the, the jumping off points that I would use for talking about the 90s. Yes, Robert, because if you think, of, I mean, I, I always thought, you know, we're in 1987. I, at the very least, thought Robocop was 1989 because I, I just see it as not being obvious. You know, Star Wars is in many ways responsible for the 80s coming in. I mean, yeah, it's weird. It's like in 1977, you get Star Wars and then the 80s spends a lot of time trying to copy Star Wars. Um, 1987 begets Robocop, and then the 90s spend a lot of time trying to bottle that particular type of... It's weird, you know, because we're going to talk about the 90s in more depth, but there is a whole thing of there's the cynicism, there's the fact that they're kind of raising the bar with regards to the kinds of content on that sort of cynical, sarcastic level that's in an, an action movie. There's a kind of indie flavour to Robocop that isn't present in any other action movies of the time. Um, they're trying to raise the bar in terms of visual effects, trying to make it, give it a particularly slick look that, that you know, and moving away from having muscle men as the action hero. You know, there's a lot of stuff that then carries forward into the 90s. Um it's just that, you know, I mean, I sp- yeah, I mean, whereas... I think, the, as says, again, the body count carries through because it's very unforgiving. Hmm. Robocop is very unforgiving. Robocop does not stop for one second to think, should I really be thinking about killing this person? That actually carries on in films into the 90s and yeah. now. Well, yeah, Robocop begets in many ways Reservoir Dogs. You know what I mean? You know, people it have... really does allow that kind of... Yeah, it's all right to kill. It's okay to just show somebody being killed. Kill and maim. Yeah, because yeah. Robocop is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Paul Verhoeven's making a sort of cynical point, whereas Reservoir Dogs isn't. It's using violence as a dramatic medium. Um, but, but it allowed that door. It but it allowed it that door open. into that that sort of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I've always thought. I mean, Robocop is another one of these eighties properties where. Although it got a sequel, it, it was ever diminishing returns. What people worked out was that although Robocop itself was a cool idea, once you've got yes. past that initial moment, it goes downhill pretty rapidly because you can't build on it. Well, it's, it's the age old problem of, you know, superheroes progressing beyond their origin stories. Uh, and, you know, Robocop, the series, oh my god. Um, but, you know, on the, on the subject of like, you know, ever diminishing returns with sequels. Uh, you know, it, it's normally considered. By the time you get to your fourth film of a franchise, things are usually pretty terrible. And this year we have four film franchises churning out their fourth anemic, wheezing film that flops like a beach shark onto a onto a well beach. Uh, you've got Death Wish Four. You've got 
Jaws, The Revenge, you've got, where's the other one? Superman for the quest for peace. Just really kind of, uh, guys, you should have stopped at that trilogy. What were you thinking? Uh, two of two of the three, because I thought you said there were four that were on four, but you only mentioned three there. But with the exception of Jaws of the Revenge, Death Wish 4 and Superman 4 were both canon properties, which we shall come back to in a, in a short while, because, of course, canon put out Masters of the Universe, um, which we, we should probably discuss at point. But um, oh, on back on Robocop, just to say, and another thing that pushed the envelope, because Robocop comes out the same year as Wall Street, and bad taste, the, the, the directorial debut of one Peter Jackson. So, yeah, I mean, I, I always thought that bad taste was a bit later than 1987, but it ain't. You seen bad, bad taste? I, well, you made me watch bad taste. Um, I'm surprised you lumped bad taste in with those films. Isn't that one with a load of aliens? I really appreciate the aliens all wearing suits and they meet up in a house in the country, don't they? And brains are splattered everywhere or am i wrong well it, it, basically they were in new zealand and and peter jackson worked out ingeniously how to make a movie for the price of making the movie uh you know it's the one with the famous uh uzi's made out of fimo uh, and stuff yeah. like that it's just <laughs> and he lived the, the, the shape of the alien's head was dictated by the shape of his oven yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was. It was he's a very little fellow, you know. I'll, I'll give him that. He's he's worked his way up, but um, it, uh, wow. I mean, throwing uh, that's that's a quite an odd little trifecta of films you've thrown. I mean, I can kind of see, you know, Wall Street. Your know, greed is good, and then you have Robocop, where you know, uh, greed and ambition is is responsible for and all the ills in the world. I mean, we had with a lot blood of splatter. We had a lot of splatter in 1987. We didn't just have... I mean, Bad Taste was was there. But, um, I mean, and again, this is Evil Dead 2 came out this year, and so did Hellraiser. Oh, and of and course... Boys. Yeah, and, well, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a little bit of splatter. There's a little bit, but I'm talking about the ones which really went for it. And uh, what's interesting is that, you know, Hellraiser has this whole thing with a guy with no skin on. And, of course, Predator, the Predator skinned his kills. Yeah. So, yeah, there's lots of people getting their skin ripped off in 1987. <laughs> Visceral. Yeah, uh, 87. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Evil Dead 2. Um, I mean, Evil Dead 2, there's a discussion centering on it that, that we've got to a point in history now, which is going to make uh, probably all of us feel very old, where young people have to have it pitched to them. They go, I, was, I didn't uh, thought it was going to be a zombie movie. And then somebody said, no, 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 it's like zombies, but it's mixed with three... Sto- well, it's more like a Three Stooges episode with zombies in it. And then they watch it and they think it's hilarious. And it's just like this this thing that, that you know, it just shows that we didn't go anywhere with this whole Evil Dead 2 concept, that people have to have that explained to them. We've got to a point where there are people too young to well, realise that yeah. Evil Dead 2 is is simultaneously a horror movie and hilarious. So, you know, you've got a lot of this stuff this 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 stuff happening. And I think, yeah, where Justin may have been detecting the rot setting is in things like Superman 4 and the fact that we've got Death Wish 4 and the fact that we've got um, Jaws yeah. <laughs> the Revenge yeah. and the fact that, I mean, there are more... Ro- but then the point is, ropey sequels have been a staple, a staple of, of uh, uh, the 80s throughout... You know, yeah, but by the time you get to the fourth film, uh, I mean, Star Trek dodged the bullet. 
but Jaws 4, where the shark is stalking the family for revenge, because the sharks can sense familial connections. And it's also, it's a shark! Move inland! Go to a landlocked state, it'll never find you. Stop having beachfront properties. Oh, then there'll, then there'll be a Sharknado and they'll get another problem with That's very good. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the thing about, I mean, I'm not sure about Jaws the Revenge, but in the case of Death Wish, Death Wish 4 came back because Canon basically did this thing of going, where are their properties where nobody's interested in making a sequel? Because, of course, these days, nobody will let their franchise go. They will always want to prosecute their right to make another this movie. This is what has come about in present day. In the 80s, it's like, no, we've made three of those. We're not going to make any more. We won't make any money on it. Can we go there? If you don't want the rights anymore, I'll buy them. <laughs> and uh, the reason that Superman 4 even exists is because Canon bought the rights to make Superman movies and um, then said to Christopher Reeve, do you want to come play Superman? He said, to be honest, I would rather shove my head in a meat grinder. And they said, we'll give you full creative control. And he went, yeah, go on then. <laughs> I seem to recall, because I actually, I actually met Clive Mantle who plays the deleted scene other super villain uh, Superman fights. And he was very much, you know, gossip here. But he was like, there was definitely some shenanigans going on there where people were people were kind of hedging for the film to be a bit of a failure. Um, and, you know, for various reasons of rights reverting and things like that, uh, shenanigans were going on. Well, yeah, because the thing about it was that... Um I mean, again, this could probably have contributed to our current situation where, what, you say, if we don't make a movie within this amount of time, we'll lose the rights? Quick, get a movie out there! So they'll keep churning out these movies that tie into particular franchises um, just to keep the rights to them. Canon exploited a time when nobody really cared, when the Roger Corman school of, well, the first film makes this much, and then the next film will make less, and the next film after that will make less. And eventually you'll get to a point yes, where you... Because we live in an age where, where cinema goers want to go see new films yes, about exactly. new ideas. Yeah, exactly. And so they just sold the rights to things they felt they'd already milked dry. You know, like in the 80s, you could milk something dry, and you, there wouldn't be any more left. Well, it never occurred to anyone at this stage that the reason that they were milking it dry was because they'd reduced the budget for every subsequent movie, and therefore people would know they're going to see a sequel. It's going to have less money. You're going to see less on screen. You know, if you compare that versus, you but know... Even nowadays with Iron Man and Thor and things like that, yeah. where the budget is comparable to the original film. Or, or far in excess yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you compare so, the original Thor, which had a lot of CG and studio effects in it, versus the new one where they go wanging around Greenwich for, yeah. you know, half an hour at the end, and then you've got these massive space battles. And, I mm. mean, Thor's 2's budget is far in excess of Thor, but Thor 1's budget. And it made more money. And it made more money. Um, so there you go. And the hung, you know, That's how you do it, people. Yeah. Come on. Catching Fire's budget <laughs> is far in excess of the Hunger yeah. Games budget. So, you know, again, you see more money on the screen, apparently. Um, I didn't really see, I think they did a good job of tying it together personally, but apparently there are some people who thought that the Hunger Games looked a bit cheap, whereas the Catching Fire looks 
bloody amazing. It was a comment about the first Hunger Games, I believe. It was a bit kind of, this looks a bit TV in places, and the, shake, and the camera shakes around too much. So perhaps being a bit more cinematic with the second film wasn't so, a terrible idea. So yeah, but this was a period when the, these two, Golan and Globus, who owned Canon, just hoovered all this stuff up, attracted stars by promising them full creative control, which was almost, as you could tell, an unmitigated disaster. The, 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 the two people they had who did good work for what they were doing were Charles Bronson, who just churned out Death Wish movies, and Chuck Norris, who just churned out Chuck Norris movies. But Yeah, Chuck Norris knew what Chuck Norris yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. He, he accepted who Chuck he was. Chuck Norris doesn't do what Chuck no, Norris does. No, but he, does, ju- he just accepted yeah. who he was. Yeah. That's what he did. Whereas as yeah. soon as they got someone who actually had, you know, had a bit of a reputation, like Stallone, for example, yeah. uh, or, you know... Um, or, 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 or indeed or Christopher Reeves, Reeves yeah. yeah. Then that was it. They couldn't. They they could not make a movie for to- or a property that they could have made some money off, like Masters of the Universe. They just totally squandered all of those opportunities. Jean Claude Van Damme dances on the edge of these two yeah. parts of Canon's library. Um, but um, but yeah, but apart, you know, I think he does end up on the Chuck Norris side. Jean Claude Van Damme made some his most famous movies with Canon. But I think that the rest of the film industry did hate Canon because Canon were trying to do something that the other studios were not trying to do. Um, so yes, you're probably completely. Five Mantle is probably completely correct that there were people at bigger studios with more money. I mean, basically, if you were working for Canon, you really wanted to be working for Fox or Universal, or it was they were you were seeing it as a stepping stone to get to a bigger studio. So if those bigger studio people came to you and said, "Could you just tr- chuck these films under the bus and we'll give you a, a producer job?" Of course they're going to do it. So yeah, that's interesting. To uh, at the same at the same time though, I mean, I mean, you know, for people like us, we're you know, we'd be happy to stick on on a classic Chuck Norris and ha- eat our pizza to it. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the pulpiness of them appeals to us. Well, yes, in retrospect, that did happen, and it is a lamentable thing in the modern age. Um, there are th- there are people who do this, but not very many, not as many as there were in the 80s. So It's mainly asylum, isn't it, these days? That's kind of the, the guys who do the knockoff kind of films. Sorry, you want to say something? No, I was going to ask if I could... Sidetrack into some of the girliness of the 80s. Yes, you, we, certainly should. we should. Certainly because should. there's a big, massive lot of girliness in the, in 87 that um, we seem to have been missing out because you're talking about all this macho stuff. And I'm kind of. Yes, like, it is. You kind of got on this macho tip and you're forgetting all this Princess Bride and Dirty Dancing and all these. And even Inner Space, which is kind of a girly film, but also still kind of, you know, well, okay Inner Space. To watch. Inner Space is famous. Uh, for being a complete bomb at the yeah. time. But it has a girliness to it in a space stuff. But, does um, it? Yeah, it does. It's got a romantic story there. Yes, it's it? definitely a romance story. Well, yeah. let's, let's use inner space as a way to get... We could go into inner space, and then we could talk about this idea of, of women mm. as an audience, mm. and then come out the other side, probably uh, by finishing up the cast, talking about um, Masters of the Universe and, um, and uh, Spaceballs as a a comparable pair um, of, of what was going wrong at that part. Because, um, I mean, even down to Lost Boys, Lost Boys had Yes, a, Lost Boys was definitely very big. 
thing going on. I think 1987 did crack, and this went on for a few years. How how to kind of get into women a little bit. Women into the cinemas was... But the big one that did it, of course, in that year was Dirty Dancing. And unexpectedly so. Yes. Massive though. But then Princess Bride sat there as well. But Princess Bride didn't get anyone into the cinemas, famously. But, but then it's it now one of the biggest it had women's a, yes. movies and men's movies. Well, it about. had a very the, one the, of the best movies that's ever been. The written. thing about Princess Bride was that um, it's unfair to say that it bombed at the box office yeah. because the studio that had it didn't know what to do with it. Didn't think. I mean, this is Princess Bride really signals the end of of people the taking fantasy. Stated, that he believes that Hello, My Name is Indigo Montoya is the most quoted lines from any of his films ever. Yeah. Now, bearing in mind all the films he's ever done, Yeah. that's a big statement to make. Yeah, and the, the point, well, what I was going to say was that yeah. I think when it came out in the cinemas, it signals the end of Hollywood thinking that they can do epic fantasy, yeah. which is interesting because these days they could. You know, epic fantasy is something yeah. that, as Lord of the Rings demonstrates, you could do really quite easily yeah. these days. But if yeah. you look at the year that um, Masters of the Universe and The Princess Bride came out, yeah. that's it. You know, the 80s, you know, we've had Labyrinth, we've had Dark Crystal, we've had Conan, we've had, um, uh, you know, all of the other stuff. Um, and and this is it. The, yeah. the Hollywood's go no more. No more men with swords wandering or no, women One of the things this year around. did was, was release Dirty Dancing, which kind of made Hollywood realise that they could market films to women. I because am... since then we've had Ghost, Titanic, all these big epic films that are actually aimed at women in a lot of ways. Well, because Dirty Dancing was unexpectedly huge. Yes. Well, this is the thing. Massive. This and is the it thing. was, it was, it's you know, this little budgeted film that was done in the middle of backwash nowhere that was made for 50p and absolutely they were queuing around the block for yeah, months yeah, yeah. to see this film. Uh, and the problem with it is that, um, the problem, I mean, yes, at the same time as making a studio a lot of yeah. money, things like that, they have, you know, Hollywood calls them sleepers. They yeah. don't know. Yeah. The point is, and what that reflects is that nobody in a Hollywood studio knows how to consistently churn out these movies. Mm. That that just because one works doesn't mean, you know, because, you know, Dirty Dancing begets Lambada, begets this, yeah. begets that, and none of them work. You know, none of them make anywhere near the stratospheric quantities yeah. of bucket loads of cash that Dirty Dancing managed to produce. Even a sequel to Dirty Dancing. But it allows people to market stuff to women now. We now have things like Muriel's Wedding. We now have things like Ghost. We now have things like... We now have a market that became a woman's market. I, I don't know if you... I don't know if, you, if you're... We didn't really before oh, that. Oh, no, I'm... What so. I'm saying is I don't think... I think you're being a bit over... I, I'm trying to be... I'm being pessimistic about this. I don't think to this day... Uh, you know, a studio can market Twilight because Twilight markets itself. Yeah. But a studio has been unable to market Beautiful Creatures, City of Bones. You know, it's it's amazing that The Hunger Games actually has any legs because they've tried and they've tried to get people in to see rip-offs of Twilight and it doesn't work. Like, only Twilight people want to see 
Twilight. They don't want to see anything else other than Twilight. And it's been the same way with, you know, when they thought that they hit on something with Dirty Dancing and went for Lambada and, and, and Tango. And, yeah, you I know. agree with you. But what but, I'm saying is it did allow a, a woman's market. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, women because, go and see movies occasionally. Yeah, what, but, what, what I'm saying is before that, women were kind of ignored in Hollywood. It was all you men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, well, my perception Now, is, women's films are enormal. Yeah. I've got a whole library of oh, films yeah, yeah. that are chick flick women's films. My perception... Like, well, actually, the chick flick, yeah. as such, is the only thing where they do break into... Yeah. They've learned that it, it, it's quite a secret, but yeah. they've learned a formula to making chick flicks. Yeah. But with these massive hits with women, yeah. my understanding of it is the studios will never try to hit it. No, they just they'll like, just green light things, and and then it it'll hit. And it's it's you know women are seen as an unpredictable target market. I don't know what do they think anyway. He's what do, what there do you as think, a man. Ian? He's gone away. Want Me? What, what do I think? I've been distracted. I've been watching Sylvester McCoy being Doctor Who. It's 1987, you know. Um, what about chick flicks? Uh, yeah, inevitably they become, once they think, oh, this is the formula for getting women into, into screens, they will, likely because they're mostly men, uh, pursue the formula, I suppose. Uh, I haven't seen Dirty Dancing. I've, I've seen Ghost. Which we should talk uh, about at the appropriate time. Yes, I'm just saying of, of that trend. Um, but I'm just saying before that, did you see any films that were really women's films that were on this? No, it because Dirty Dancing stopped making women's films. Oh right, we can make films for women, and all of a sudden during the 90s, women become were allowed to have films. And it's really weird. Well, I'm quite sure. It's, it's, it's Probably really cool. back in the day, they made films for everybody, and then Star Wars came along, and it was boys and their toys. Yeah, for quite it was a long boys' time toys from seventies onwards. It was all you men. Well, because they just there made so much cash. Boys' toys. Well, I think yeah, I think prior to Star Wars, yeah. they made film. Film was seen as this is interesting because yeah. this is, I think, why so many people got angry about Star Wars because now it comes to me that Star Wars made films for everyone you know the idea like you said of a family film it, yeah. came about because of star wars and before that film was seen as an adult thing kids mm. might like movies but that's because they were going to grow up to be cineast it, it was a subgenre. it was children's films yeah exactly and then it became you know and so i think some directors actually blame the 80s for the infantilization of cinema as mm. a whole um and yeah i mean i think that the dirty dancing is a particular watermark in that they met, it was popular with women, but the thing is that I think it really did, and this is the same thing that happened to sort of the Beauty and the Beast, the original Beauty and yeah. the Beast television show, and um, and 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 also American Gothic, is that as soon as they identified that it was popular with women, the studio actually kind of wanted to kill that idea. Because suddenly people were like, let's make this for women and let's make that. And the people who were more senior were like, no, you don't understand. This thing never works out. We want to kill this because we don't like, we don't trust women as an audience. They'll just, they just won't go and see. Boys will pretty much go and see what you tell them to go and see. Women, you make something for them and, and then for some reason they don't want to see it. And so studios became very cynical about that order. And I can't help thinking those executives had some very trying marriages 
plural. Yeah. Uh, well, yes, I mean, I know that they're idiots, but I'm just, I'm just stating their position. I'm not saying that I agree or subscribe to it. Uh, this is the thing. I mean, you know, the studio that killed the Princess Bride cinematic release must have been kicking themselves yeah. in the yeah. summer. I mean, yes, they have made umpty billion, billion pounds from it on DVD, but, um, but seriously. No sequel, yeah. Um, the unseekable film. Um, yeah, I, I I don't have much to opine. I'm quite well, happy to defer Princess to Sue on this for being the authority on this matter. If you I suppose. didn't notice, we just moved on to Princess Bride. There, I thought you were going to pick that up and run with it. But well, I can do. But it's like, what what, what is there to say about the goddamn film? It, it it's it's you know, you say you described it as the epic fantasy, but I I wouldn't have called Princess Bride an epic fantasy. There's no armies as such. There's there's princes chasing after women. And rogues chasing after women, and there's a few castles here or there, and your well, crowd scene. But, but there's, there's no. Would you describe Hawk the Slayer as an epic fantasy? Yes, because at least there's armies and fighting in that one. Oh, I see. You know, Princess Bride, there's a, there's a few gloriously hysterical fencing matches, which I think are some of the really good swordplay, really good uh, dialogues, uh, genuinely very funny and very quotable. Uh, fencing scenes in there, but there's very little fighting. It's all about madcap wordplay and yeah, uh, be, just being in love. I think what you've done there is you've bottled the exact reason why the studio tried to kill it. They're like, what kind of fantasy is this? There's no armies. There's no evil overlord. There's no what. And then of course, well, the, like, the film, the film, even, the film even points it out. The film even has the the, the kid who's, who the story's being read to going, "This sounds a bit girly to me." And, yeah. the, and the, you know, Peter Fall going, no, stick with it, kid. Um, and also, the, the bad guy at the end, he's not disposed of. He isn't like, he doesn't have a sword driven through him and fall off the battlements at the end. He does, does tie him up and they run away. The, the, the person who gets killed is the, is, is the Baron with six fingers. He's, he's the only one to get the chop uh, in terms of your climactic battle. And that's, and that's the B story that's going on. But I think, I think to be fair, the Princess Bride, well, well, and therefore the Princess Bride established much later on that if something had a, a, a wry humour and an emotional engagement, it would appeal, who knew it, to both men and women simultaneously, and they would all like it. But again, it's they're fickle people because, you know, uh, I, I think that the later adaptation of Stardust was aiming for that Princess Bride yeah, uh, audience. Deliberately so, yes. But the thing about it was that it, they made a proper fist of the release of that in cinemas, but no one went to see it. And over time, Star... I mean, this is the thing. You, you would, If you were going to invest in a movie like that, it's a long-term investment. You, you don't really put it in the cinema. You get it straight out on DVD, and then you let it spread like a virus. And one day, I'm sure that Stardust... Or as it already does in my film collection, will sit shoulder to shoulder with Princess Bride as that's the kind of thing you have, and you put it on, and you, it lifts your spirits. But you you don't rush out to see it at the cinema, and that's very frustrating to film studios because everything's about the opening weekend. Um, yes. So so yes, I mean this is the thing. It's simultaneously a great triumph and and a bit of a letdown. Something that wasn't either of those things to the studio and did encapsulate both the male and female audiences simultaneously and also had a, a bonza opening weekend is The Lost Boys, which we have discussed before, being as it's what yeah. your mostest favourite film it's of the I'm quite surprised. I'm, I'm, 
I'm, so I'm, I'm surprised you describe it as a film as geared towards women because in my head it's about you know you've got the younger brothers and his friends all boys you've got the older brother he goes on the dark journey and is led astray and is redeemed and goes right in the end I mean I, I know there's the love interest uh, character in there but I, I can, she's very vague to my mind. I can remember the mother far more clearly than I can the imagine. Jamie Gertz. You can't remember Jamie Gertz in there. Right. No, it's kind of, so, it's kind of a blur. And explain why women love the Lost Boys. Because oh, they like bad boys. Well, it's good not on the just inside. the bad boys it. thing. It's the whole... I think it's... You have to remember when we came out of the 80s with that, we'd been growing up with those guys, Jamie Gertz and the Corries and all that kind of stuff. So women had already attached a, a, a kind of romantic thing to those lads. They already knew which one of the, the those guys they fancied. To put them, you know, you already kind of liked, oh, do you fancy Keith Sutherland or Jason Patrick or do you fancy, you know what I mean? You already had that kind of thing going off. <laughs> You're putting them all in this one film. Where there's this kind of funny overturn, but also a romantic overturn where there's this almost forbidden love, but at the same time kind of like, because there's this kind of Romeo and Juliet kind of like love thing going off where they can't be together, but they can be together. But she's like a vampire and he's like not, doesn't want to be a vampire and da, 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 da. And you've got that going off. While at the same time, you've got this battle going off underneath, you know what I mean? Because the whole plot of that film is he sees her while walking down the boulevard and that's it. He gets turned into a vampire to be with her. So to us, that's like, you know, you go and look at Twilight now and it's like, yeah, okay, this is, this is where it, the, the whole idea came from. Um, so, yeah, women, of course, are going to be like, oh, you know, you fall in love with the vampire and you get pushed to your limits and you get Keith Sutherland comes along and pushes pushes Jason Patrick to his limits because he's in love with Jamie Gert. So that's how yeah, I mean, women saw honestly, it. Honestly, The Lost, Lost Boys is proto-Twilight, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because basically Keith he Sutherland... falls in love with a girl who he sees walking along a boulevard and Keith Sutherland goes, if you want this girl, you're going to have to like prove yourself and become one of us, Michael. Well, it's one of that... us, Michael. One of us. And yeah. he chanted all the way through the film, one of us, one of us. And then, 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 the, whole, the whole key concept of, you know, although it was made with a different focus... Jamie Gertz is there and she's caught between hunky Keith Sutherland and hunky Jason, Jason Patrick. Patrick. Yeah. Which one will she choose? Yeah. Fight! Anyway, yeah. yeah. But then they really yeah. do have a fight. Yeah. You know, it's that it's that exact thing. Where the, we, how bizarre. I had never really put that together but because it's looked at from a different angle. But it has that same cookie-cutter thing of yeah. there's a girl, there's two guys, which one is she going to go with? Yeah. Is you she know. gonna go with the one who's been looking after her for years and made her a vampire? Is she gonna be go with the one who's sacrificing everything for her? Is she yeah, gonna, it's all very you know, yeah. It's like, oh, so you know. that's so it's the it's the age old fairy tale of immortal woman gives up her immortality to live a normal life yeah. with a guy. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the fact that the that, you know Diane Veast as well. Let's not forget. Is, is, she's brilliant. She's a great thing. emotional touchstone, but she's just... And a of course, dis- she's you know. dating the head vampire, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is another thread of romance in there, because we all kind of know she's rich, she is dating the head vampire, but she's, she doesn't, and, you know, they're all kind of... Well, you do stuff. once you've seen the film. Yeah, once. but you know what I'm saying? She's, you know, it's like... 
you get you get what I mean. It's like it's brilliant. It's like, and then you've got Grandpa walking around being absolutely nuts. So you've got that seam of humour again. Yeah, I mean, it, it just, it's it's absolutely. There's a lot of humour in Lost Boys. Yeah, yes, it's you've got absolutely that hysterical. So, yeah. Well, no, I'm just saying there's yeah. a seam of humour throughout the whole yeah. film. So you know, I mean, again, so it could be said that the Lost Boys is a prototype because I mean, if you think of all the films we've discussed up to this point. None of them go, oh, but you can cover all the bases. You can have action and horror and comedy and everything. As a woman, I looked at Lost Boys as a film that was funny, smart, complex, sexy. Because I'm sorry, the vampire, you know, Mm. those vampires, you're going to fall in love with one of them. They're sexy, you know. Um, You know, it was like that was a film that actually made me fall in love with Keith Sutherland as a vampire. You know what I mean? It was Um, odd. It was like... Uh, my yeah. first teenage crush was Keith Sutherland as a vampire in, in Lost Boys. I, you know, that's how, that's what Lost Boys did to me. Yeah. But at the same time, it's got its horror elements, it's got its humour elements, it's got all that plot line in there. Yeah. And that's why I made it my top pick of the 80s, full stop, end of story, because it's got everything crammed into that one film. It's got its buddy movie, it's got its brothers, it's got its, you know what I mean? It's got everything crammed in to one film and it appeals to women because it's got the love story yeah it appeals to men men because it's got the horror and the buddy story but it also has all the humor which appeals to everybody so yeah so there we go you, it's perfect um interesting i, I, I would leave this topic alone of the the girliness of night well, I, I, I can i can see another romance vampire film this year as well which is what in in near dark Oh yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, let's not even go near that. I, 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 I haven't got much to say about that movie. But I have got an interesting question to ask Sue about this. They, of course, Hollywood did try and market a film to women this year, very much big budget, big mm. cast, big acting. Witches of Eastwick. I like Witches of Eastwick. Right. I like it. I like it because I like the tiny cheapness of it. I like how. I do love that film, but I know a lot of women don't. I know a lot of women find Jack Jack a little bit pervy. Right. I know a lot of women find it a little bit creepy. I know a lot of women find... Because they can't understand how any woman could kind of like that whole thing. Because it's a little bit like he's too... It's a little bit too male-dominated. Well, that's what... For a bit... For a bit... Yeah. For, for a female film. It's like, yeah, it's a woman's film where women are being dominated by a man who's a perverted, creepy devil dude. Well, that's what I, mean? I actually don't mind it because I take it with the tongue in the cheek thing again. And I, you know, look at the scenes where the woman's throwing up cherry pips and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I kind of take it as a kind of pseudo horror film and kind of enjoy that side of it. But a lot of people took it well, very much the wrong way. What I would say so. is that what I would say is fascinating about yeah. it is that therefore the big I mean, of all the movies we've discussed in that vein, which is of Eastwick definitely had the biggest budget. Yeah. And it managed to fall uncomfortably between those two stores. It's men, typical men thinking they know well, what women yeah. want. Men find it very tedious and women find it creepy. But it's typical so. men do, thinking they know what women want. It's typical men go, yeah, look at men being sexy. This is what women want, isn't it? And so, women going, yeah. yeah, that's kind of, yeah. yeah. So then, right. There's no fun <clears throat> or humour in that. No. It's actually quite... It's actually quite horrible and dark and yeah. nasty. So, 
So They misjudged their audience. Yes. And talking of misjudged their audience, we've got there at last. Masters of the Universe, which we did discuss, obviously, as part of the whole He-Man franchise and said, this is the thing that put the lid on He-Man in our last episode about the cartoons. Still uh, think it's amazing not, that well, Justin doesn't know the vegetarian line. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, uh, yeah, but, but, but it, yes, the Masters of the Universe film came out. Ian, when was the last time you watched Masters of the Universe? Oh, God, it must have been on television or something. It's quite a while ago. You know, it's hard to say. If they just stayed on Eternia but had the same kind of level of stuff going on, I don't know if... Would I feel very differently about it? I don't know. Because the whole going to Earth is a big kind of bubble uh, bubble pop for me in terms of being in the the He-Man zone. Um, because you go to Earth and suddenly you just realise just how rubbish it all is, actually, when you, when well, you contrast, think, contrast it all with, with real life. I think <laughs> the important touchstone with the Masters of the Universe, I don't think that necessarily going to Earth was the place where it all necessarily went that wrong. Where it actually went wrong is that, because we watched the first half an hour of it just to sort of get familiar, be, you know, in, in the zone. It, it's, it's a little bit Star Warsy with, with like, that, you know, yeah. Skeletor well, and his the I, I know the film quite well, ironically, and it was surprising, to, I think, to Leo to realise how well I knew the film, because I was there almost going to him, this is this scene, oh, and this is this bit, and this is the bit where this happens, and here comes the stormtroopers, and here comes this bit, you know what I mean? And I think it shocked Leo how, and I said to him, the first thing I said to him is, here's the Superman opening credits, and here's the Star Wars scene. Exactly, and the thing about it is that that's where <laughs> that's where they went wrong. Is that Canon went okay? So we're making a big blockbuster. We're putting. I mean, the other thing is that they put a lot of money into the movie, and you can't really see it on screen. It, it, it is surpri- It is surprising just how much of the mythology they they threw out for the movie. There's no secret identity. It's just he man, and he's going about his business. They don't even bother with Skeletor's surprise attack. It's already over. By the time the film starts, and we're off to throw portals to 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 Earth fairly well, that's, promptly. That's not really a surprise because they didn't have the money or the CG for it in those days. So, um, and as well as which, I understand from the uh, exposition at the beginning, the Basil exposition at the beginning, that Skeletor's surprise attack was you know, use a teleporter to go into the castle and go surprise. So you know. <laughs> It wouldn't really also, have been you know, that great a scene, to be honest. Skeletor, Skeletor himself perhaps was misjudged because it's kind of a flesh skull face as opposed to a skull headed demon, which he was in the cartoon. And I you think, would have thought a skull face that would be hard to pull off. I'm not sure that that's what was misjudged. I think where it it's was. It's not a deal breaker. They got Frank Langella, and the point is, right. If you look, the, where they did the casting right on this was Evil Lynn being played by Meg Foster. She was good. Yes. Meg Foster, you know, she makes things like They Live and stuff like that. She's aware of her position as a sort of B-movie icon. So this is a B-movie. She's a B-movie icon. Evil Lynn, straight down the road. Frank Langella, enormously respected actor, quite blatantly doing the, what am I doing again? Sorry, why am I here? So you've got Skeletor being played by a man who's not phoning it in. He's giving it the best college try. It's just quite plain. He just don't understand what the hell's going on. If they'd have got David Warner, the man who saved Tron from Peter O'Toole, 
to play Skeletor, it would have been fine. He'd be like, I don't care what I'm doing. I'm chewing the scenery. That's what I'm doing. But no, Frank Langella was too much. They they should not have hired an actor who would stop for a minute to consider what he was doing. And that's what they did. So that's that was one of the mistakes. And there was the thing of making it far too much like they went, oh, we don't really they're saying we don't want to make it like the cartoon we've bought the license for. We want to make it like Star Wars in the same year that Space Wars come out. And, you know, there's a thing, and I think it would still hold true if people did normal spoofs, but they don't. They just do reference movies. Um, but the, when the first proper spoof comes out and takes hold of the public imagination, whatever it was it's spoofing is pretty much over. If you're going to do something like that again, it has to be new, has to be fresh. The spoof signals that people are tired of X, Y, or Z. And Spaceballs comes out, and that pretty much tells you, if Master of the Universe is just a straight rip-off of Star Wars, which it kind of is, it's not going to work, because people are tired of that. So, you know, these are the things that they did wrong, is that they didn't... He late to the party, yeah. Yeah, they well, for Star Wars, if they'd have done a He-Man movie, they might have pulled it off. But they didn't trust they didn't trust their own property. They went, Well, oh, what's this silly music? Let's write something that sounds like Star Wars. If this Masters Universe movie had started with that big synthesized kind of cartoon or even a sort of jazzed up version of the the, the, the theme tune to He Man, if if the whole thing had just been kind of vaguely campy and ridiculous. I think possibly they were looking at things like Flash Gordon and going, well, it can't be like that. It's yet that Flash Gordon had, in the meanwhile, become a massive cult cult favourite. If He-Man had used Flash Gordon as its basis, not Star Wars, then it could have worked. But it it didn't. It tried to rip off Star Wars with He-Man in it. And the point was, people who like He-Man like He-Man. They might also like Star Wars, but it's a bit like people who like fish and also like custard. They don't want them together. Really, I think, I think really my, my only closing feelings on the whole film, I, I don't think Dolph Lundgren is, is the huge liability people think he is. He's He-Man. He, he has big muscles, big sword, good guy. You know, not a lot is particularly required of him, so I think, I think Dolph Lundgren was fine as far as he goes. But the thing is, when I think about He-Man, you had to remind me, oh yeah, and then they all came fl- crashing down that film. When I think of He-Man, I think of the toys, I think of the original 1980s cartoon, I think of perhaps She-Ra, if I'm going to be talking about it at length. But th- that's kind of, the, the film honestly doesn't occur to me, it, it occupies a different part of my head. So I obviously went there and, and came away thinking, well, that was alright, but it wasn't, wasn't my He-Man. You know, it's not like my cartoon suddenly became a movie like it did with Transformers. This was clearly a separate universe, a separate iteration. Um, you know? So, yeah, I, I think that's kind of... The childhood me puts down a big petition, obviously, in his head about all this and saying, here is He-Man and there is the other thing. And I, I don't hate the movie or despise it. It's just, like I say, the opposite of, of, of love is not hate. It, it's indifference. Yes, and I think that's definitely. I think that's where it it got relegated into a zone of nobody really cares about it. Um, on the on the final um note to close out because closing out on that big kind of master universe, that was a bit rubbish, wasn't it? Um, we're going to do something now that people have done many times over the years, and that is nearly completely forget about batteries not included. And I think we have we can't leave nineteen eighty seven 
without noting the existence of it, this movie. It was a TV movie that got, that got promoted into the cinemas, as I recall. And it's a very quaint, cute idea. It's amazing there weren't a thousand million toys lined up to go with this very cutesy idea of little friendly robots buzzing around your house, just kind of being there, making other little robots. Um, you know, I think I think the whole the whole kind of concept of it was there's, there's there's no real conflict, there's no real bad guys other than the developers who want to knock down the block block of flats. Um, but apart from that, it's just kind of a kind of a nice, cute, safe film that I think. It, that no one particularly might have taken their kids to, really. I think it's a beautiful little piece of work for for the actors that were involved as well. I think Jessica Tandy especially shines in that film. Um, I think it's just, you know, it's one of those films that it has its moments of sadness because of the things that are going off that are personal. It's a very personal, emotional film, mm. and the aliens are just there, kind of in the in the background. Ironically, yeah. well, I, I, it's really odd. I can't help but it's notice it's about these people who live in these flats. What's kind of coming to me as we go through these is that there gets to a point in the 1980s where other people who are not Steven Spielberg manage to hit that note. And what is really foxing me on this is that. They do manage to out Spielberg Spielberg, but by the time they do it, for some reason, audiences aren't responding to it. And I, I, I think it's because when you manage to rip off Steven Spielberg so, and that sort of Spielbergian you know, mythos type of that universe of, you know, uh, wonder and stuff, you know, that whole E.T. Yeah. vein and then try to do all of that other stuff. When you manage to nail it so completely, People just kind of assume, and because he was so, such a figure, oh, he's producing this, but he's not directing it, or he's involved with this, or he's a, that as soon as something like that comes out, it's like we all thought that Steven Spielberg was something to do with Flight of the Navigator. Nope, he's nothing to do with this either. But I think at the time there was this perception that anything that was Spielberg... He was. What? I say he was. Oh, was he? Steven Spielberg he was. Batteries is not included. Yes, he was. Oh, well, what did he do for it then? Did he direct it? Was it was it? originally part of the Amazing Stories. Uh, that oh, was the original okay. concept for it. But he, he thought this this idea has legs like to make it a feature film. Oh, okay. So, Fair enough. Yeah. So yes, this was a Steven Spielberg. Oh, film right. So that was. It was an Amberlin Entertainment film. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, well, there we go. Then that yeah. punches yes. a hole in that balloon. Yes. Sorry, Leo. This one was a Steven Spielberg. And that's one. exactly the point. It gets to a point in the 80s where you cannot pick them apart. Sheep and goats. Yeah. Is this got, has Steven Spielberg got something to do with this? We can't tell. Yeah. But no, this one was a Steven Spielberg one. Okay. And beautifully written, beautifully done. Um, it says that, but it is about the people in this flat and the aliens kind of helping them a little yeah. bit rather than it's all about the emotions of the people who live there rather than about these flying saucers that yeah. are floating around you know and yeah. it's really odd how they played that but because you'd think it'd be more about the aliens that are landed rather okay. than the people but yeah it's a great little film well once more the great clock has rotated and we have completely ignored put on snooze the alarm that told us we should have shut up a while ago Mainly because the the year, uh, I mean, we haven't even talked about Angel Heart, for example. Yeah, but there's, but let's not talk about Angel Heart. Uh, films which actively lie to the audience, no. Okay. <laughs> um, but, well, yeah, I mean, we can't really get into that discussion right now on the basis that we've run out of time. So, if there's anything you're outraged that we haven't talked about, 
Uh, like, I'm quite kind of sad that in our discussion of the girlification of the 80s, despite the fact that we watched it last night, we didn't actually have a... Uh, I have a let's not ask with this, end with this question. Have you ever sat down and watched Flowers in the Attic? Ian? No. Have you no. ever heard of Flowers in the Attic? No. Oh, that's interesting. Because I had heard of it. I thought that many men had heard of this movie, but that not many had actually seen it. It was very much a, a girl's movie. But we shall... There we go. That's the answer to that. Fair enough. Well, we shall move on. And if you want us to discuss a movie from the 1980s that we have missed or whatever, or you outraged that we, we haven't uh, presented an in-depth analysis of uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 or whatever, then where might they go? Or Dragnet, uh, the, the spoof movie that came out in 1987. Where might they go to tell us that we've, we've missed out a, a cultural touchstone and therefore our entire analysis is invalid here? Well, I suppose one place they could go would be our Facebook page. You can find it on Facebook, and you can find it at Facebook slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as a number, so that's 80s kids. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up our podcasts there, as well as links, and very occasionally we have discussions there. Uh, but podcasts are what it's all about, and you can find those on the podomatic.com uh, page. So that's 80s kids, that's 80s as in letters, E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, kids.podomatic.com. Please go there. Please subscribe to us using your podcast aggregator of your choice or download direct to your PC for dark reasons of your own. That is where all our current shows are stored. Our archive is currently on dot 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 leostableford.com where it will be living for the next few weeks until we've had time to create a a proper 80s kids archive with all the 80s kids goodness that you could possibly want and maybe some more besides that. Um, I'm also uh, rattling to the conclusion. In fact, I should be putting the final couple of thousand words this weekend on the the final episode of Bridgetown Tales, uh, which if you haven't started it yet, well, you've got nearly 200,000 words to get through before the end of the entire thing. So I'd get over to bridgetowntales.blogspot.com and give it a go. Some of that is illustrated by Justin, but we don't care about that because he's working right now. Um, and the wife doesn't have a website. Yeah, so I, guess, I, I, I don't have anything. Sorry. So I guess it's time for these flowers to go up into the attic where we will starve slowly as our grandmother refuses to serve us. What are you talking about? I don't know. Oh, I'm just going to say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Farewell.